0: I have found no examples of ministers, the prime minister or their offices knowingly or negligently failing to act on intelligence, advice or recommendations on the issues I have investigated related to the 2019 and 2021 elections. However, I did find that there are significant and
1: unacceptable gaps in the machinery of government was David Johnston yesterday, the special rapporteur appointed by the prime minister to look into the matter of foreign election interference and specifically China's meddling in our democratic system and to make recommendations, including on the question of whether there would be a public inquiry. David Johnston says there should not be a public inquiry. It appears as though the prime minister is uh, quite content to accept that recommendation. Now, he does, in his report, illustrate where there are some... Well, gaps is a pretty mild way of putting it. A real mess when it comes to sharing intelligence and making sure that ministers are aware of important and pressing matters. So that needs to be addressed. But otherwise, for all intents and purposes, it seems as though Johnston is telling us that there's not much to see here and that we just have to take his word on that. So where does that leave this whole issue? And, and should Canadians... Uh, accept that assurance from David Johnston or, for that matter, from the government. Our next guest says that that doesn't really cut it. Canadians deserve more than that. Uh, His latest uh, at The Globe and Mail, Mail theglobeandmail.com. Joining us on the line here this afternoon for more on this report is Andrew Coyne, columnist uh, for The Globe and Mail. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Rob. Now that we've had, you know, just over a day to digest this and, and to see the reaction, and in particular, I, th- I think, you know, the political pressure that is still there on the government, is this report going to suffice? Are they going to be able to to get away with accepting these recommendations and, and not calling a public inquiry?
0: Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, this is Canada, so uh, governments have a lot of leeway. Uh, we don't have a lot of institutional mechanisms to hold them to account. In theory, the NDP could, since they're dependent on the NDP to stay in power. But the NDP seems to be, I think, once again, kind of huffing and puffing, but not really doing very much on this. Uh, I think it will depend in part upon what else comes out, because I don't think we've, you know, I'm going to guess here, but I don't think we've heard the last uh, out of the uh, out of whoever's been uh, leaking this information. And I suspect there's more to come. So that may uh, determine it. It will also depend upon how how tough the conservatives want to be, whether they think the public is with them. Uh, I think there's some evidence that the public is, is unhappy with the government on this, that, they, that it, is not, it has contributed to a, a bad climate of opinion around the government. Um, but certainly, you know, in terms of what's actually required objectively, uh, I think this report fell woefully short of, 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 a, of, a, of, a, of a proper process that would actually rebuild public trust.
1: What does that say about David Johnston then, Uh, you know, the decision to accept this appointment, the way he approached this, you know, the the defensiveness we we almost saw from him yesterday? What what do you take away on on those questions?
0: Well, I I think he fell into the same trap that a lot of people have fallen into of saying, uh, well, how dare you impugn this man's integrity? That's not what this is about. You could be the, the, you know, the, the most, you know, high character person on earth. But if you have a conflict, you have a conflict. Uh, if, if you're the friend of somebody, if you're the friend of a judge, the judge doesn't get to sit in your case. He has to accuse himself no matter what you know, what uh, sterling reputation the judge has. So, you know, the, the conflict of interest rules, the rule is not avoid a conflict unless you're a very good man. The rule is avoid conflicts. And mm-hmm. he clearly had multiple conflicts in this case that would lead a reasonable person to wonder, uh, would he be able to look at this wholly objectively and not be colored are tainted by you know general feelings of goodwill towards the prime minister so it's not unreasonable for somebody to say recuse yourself or in this case don't take the appointment so i think it showed uh, an error of judgment on his part uh, to have accepted it and frankly i think a lot of that uh, faulty judgment also filters through into the way in which he assessed this case I I, I I you know i go back to when he was his previous assignment when he was chosen to set the terms of a public inquiry on the mulroney schreiber affair uh, where he uh, catastrophically recommended that, you know, in an investigation of Mr. Mulroney taking hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash under the table from Mr. Schreiber after his prime minister, we should leave out the whole Airbus matter. Uh, and, and that uh, really colored that whole inquiry. So <laughs> I, have to say, I think he's done it again in this case.
1: Right. And I mean, you know, it's interesting, too. And I mean, there's there's kind of a theme here of, you know, David Johnston asserting things and and saying, well, I can't really demonstrate any of this to you. You sort of have to take my word. one example was on the question of that conflict. Now, he says that he reached out to a former Supreme Court justice to get a legal opinion on that question. We're not able to see that legal opinion. But back to the point you raised, I mean, the mere fact that you're asking for a legal opinion is a recognition of the perception of the conflict. The the perception is the issue here, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and, and exactly. It's not a matter of the legal letter of the law kind of thing. The, 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 all of the conflict of interest codes are written in a very similar language, which is that you should conduct your affairs in a, in a way that would bear the highest scrutiny, that you should go out of your way. In other words, it's on you. It's incumbent upon you to make sure that nobody could have any questions about your, your impartiality. It's not on the public to set aside their doubts. It's on you to make sure that you don't behave in a way that causes them to have doubts. And you can't, in those cases, seek refuge in gray areas and parsing out how close is too close a friendship. It's on you to stay out of those gray areas. Uh, And I just don't think he has in this case.
1: Right. And one of the points you raise in your piece is then through that lens, uh, it seems as though David Johnson has gone out of his way to excoriate uh, those who would also be, I guess, you know, the the thorns in the side, if you will, of the government that the media is to blame, the opposition is to blame. Those in thesis who have been leaking information, they're part of the problem as well. But that's yeah. that's awfully convenient to the government, isn't it?
0: Well, yeah, so you start with the fact that he has these conflicts. Then you have the fact that, that he basically, the, the, the gist of his report is, if you'd seen the, the intelligence that I've seen, then you would know that all of this concern that has been raised in the media is overblown and a misconstrued intelligence, et cetera. But I can't show you that intelligence, but you'll just have to take my word for it. Uh, um, and, and I'll put an asterisk in that and come back to that to the extent that he said that. But certainly at prima facie, that's what he's saying is take my word for it which is hard would be hard given the conflicts, which would be hard given the contestable nature of this issue, and certainly is hard when you look at his reasoning on this. I, I have to say, it's entirely possible that in the fullness of time he will be proven right, that, mm. this, that, 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 he, that this intelligence does back him up, and we have to allow for that possibility. Uh, um, but on, just on the terms of what he presents in the report itself, it's remarkably inclined to give the benefit of the doubt to the government. On a number of occasions, for example, he'll simply, he simply says, I asked the prime minister whether there had been this or that thing going on or whether he knew about this or that, and he told me no. And sort of that seems to be the end of it when it comes to the government. But as you say, having given the government the benefit of about six ways to Sunday in the course of the report, he, re- he seems to reserve his particular scorn for the people who were raising this matter, for the people who reported on it, Uh, for the opposition parties for for raising questions about it and particularly he seems particularly have it in for the people who who leaked the information to the press now i absolutely grant that that you know other things being being equal you don't want people leaking intelligence uh, 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 to the media Um, but there are some cases where the ends will justify the means not all ends justify all means but some do and that's part of what you know, is the reason we want to investigate this is if there is, as as has been alleged, and is, is at least can be credibly uh, wondered about, if the government has been negligent or or deliberately uh, looking the other way at some of this, uh, that would certainly be something you'd want to look into. And if it were the case, would would fully justify, in my opinion, uh, bringing it to the public's attention. None of this would be going on. We wouldn't be asking any of these questions. The government wouldn't have been taking some of the. Um, remedial measures they've been doing in the last few weeks. None of this would be happening if it hadn't been for the leaks, including Donald, David Johnson's report. So the fact that he kind of unloads on the leakers uh, and the and, and, and the media and, and and gives the government basically a, a pass uh, in, in 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 a way that's not only seems to be credulous but selective and one sided, where he he will he's, he's at great pains to contextualize some things and some things he just kind of glosses over. So, for example. Uh, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. He lists this as one of the achievements of the government, shows that they're on the ball, they're actually taking this seriously. He doesn't mention that the NSI cop themselves have complained uh, quite vociferously that the government has been, done nothing, has given no, um, um, taken no action in response to their recommendations. So it, it, a lot of times with People in public life, or these kinds of issues, what's as significant is not just what people say, but what they don't say. So there's lots in this report that, on its own, you wouldn't take issue with. But then you say, "But wait a minute, why didn't he say X, Y, or Z?" And that's where you start you start wondering about his judgment.
1: Well, it's interesting because he does acknowledge that, look, China has certainly attempted to to interfere in, in our democratic system, that, that they made overt attempts to do so. Uh, there's some open question, he says, as to how successful they were. But again, in, in terms of that benefit of the doubt, he seems to be coming down on the side of... Well, I couldn't find any evidence that you know money was received or that, that there were those helping Chinese officials. So it probably didn't happen. I mean, again, he's he's acknowledging that we've got some serious issues here, but at the same time, he seems to be downplaying them.
0: Well, that, that that's exactly right. I mean, it it's um, there's no smoking gun, so therefore there's no there's no smoke. You know, there's nothing there's nothing worth pursuing. So. You know, yeah, the, the China, uh, uh, he says, had a plan to funnel money to eleven candidates, but we can't be sure that the, the candidates got the money. So therefore, let's just, you know, close the file, or, you know, or you know, the, yeah, there were there were disinformation campaigns launched against uh, against the Tory candidates, but we can't trace it necessarily back to the Chinese state. Uh, so therefore, we don't need to worry about that, or, or you know, uh, uh, you know that liberal. Uh, MP, the candidate, uh, yeah, he was close with the consular officials and ch- the Chinese consular officials, and yeah, they they did intervene to to secure the nomination for him, but he didn't seem to, he didn't know about it, and we don't need to ask further questions about it. You know, it, uh, absolutely, you would not convict or anybody or, or or fire anybody on the basis of this information. Uh, it's, it's not conclusive at all, uh, but again, to say that there's nothing here. Relies pretty heavily on this other intelligence that he's seen, and and I don't know whether that that intelligence should be interpreted in exactly the way that he has or not. I'm having to take his word for it, but I'm I, for various reasons I'm not really inclined to, to be completely confident in his judgment, and particularly when he when he basically says, "Well, there's no alternative. Uh, uh, you know, we can't do a, We can't go to a public inquiry uh, because all it would do is just basically duplicate my findings." Uh, and, and to boot, it wouldn't really be a public inquiry because it was all top secret. We couldn't possibly have a public inquiry. And, and all of those things are essentially our assertions on his part, and again, room to doubt on them. We've had public inquiries in the past that dealt with sensitive uh, national security, military in, intelligence, I should say, uh, and, and we were able to manage it. With Some things were kept in, in camera. Some things were in public. There were judgment calls that were made by the commissioners. You had people arguing both sides. That's how the process is supposed to work, rather than just having one guy saying at the outset, well, you can't possibly do this. Uh, that, that, I note that, that you know people with serious national security cred, like Richard Fadden, the former head of CESA, former national security intelligence advisor to the prime minister, absolutely says we should have a public inquiry, has repeated that after Johnson's report. So I don't think we need to take it as read that this would be a completely unwieldy process. And one of the reasons that he says we shouldn't go to it is, oh, it would be unwieldy, it would be costly, it would take a long time, because you have all this cross-examination exactly you have cross-examination so that if the prime minister says i didn't know anything about this uh somebody can say oh that's very interesting prime minister can i compare what you've just said to what so-and-so said or what you said on another occasion and you get you test the evidence uh whereas in this case you know johnson's basically taken their word for it and we're supposed to take his word for it and i'm sorry i just don't think that's adequate
1: I think a lot of people would agree with that. Uh, Your latest is mentioned at theglobeandmail.com. We'll see where this all goes from here. But uh, for now, Andrew Coyne, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Very good. Thanks, Rob. All the best. There you go. Andrew Coyne, columnist at the Globe and Mail, uh, theglobeandmail.com. Great piece from him. Uh, You can read uh, today up at theglobeandmail.com. And also, you know, find his piece from a couple of days ago, sort of in the lead up to the release of this report on how we got here. You know, what we know about China's influence campaign and the unanswered questions that I think are still, unfortunately, unanswered questions.
2: We should leave it to an experienced judge who's heard cases involving national security and sensitive information to decide what becomes public and what doesn't. And ultimately to rule on what occurred and what needs to happen to fix it.
1: A lot of followed, still a lot of reaction to the report tabled yesterday by special rapporteur, former Governor General David Johnston, in his review of the whole issue of foreign interference. And, of course, specifically on the question of whether there would be or should be a public inquiry, David Johnston says no. That was conservative leader Pierre Polyab, uh, who disagrees and very much believes that there should be a public inquiry. Now, I, I, I share that concern. I do think there, there should be. But there's a lot to unpack in this report. And we're going to come at it in a couple of different ways today. But where I want to begin today is on some of the big questions about how government operates when it comes to gathering and sharing intelligence, how things make their way up the chain to ministers or even to the prime minister. One of the things we've struggled to understand in all of this Uh, is how some of these uh, red flag issues were seemingly ignored. And even some wondering whether in certain cases the government was looking the other way rather than uh, take some decisive action. What this report paints uh, a picture of is one of not just incompetence, but dysfunction. Things are not getting to where they need to go. In fact, in many cases, important matters are just getting lost in this whole mess of a system that we have. And so as much as some might be reading into this that uh, Johnson's report vindicates the government, in some ways it's a pretty harsh assessment of just what a mess we have on our hands here. And something our next guest is really trying to call attention to in his latest piece for The Line, theline.substack.com. Matt Gurney is a columnist and co-founder of The Line and joins us on The Line here this afternoon. Matt, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program
2: hey, it's nice to be here. I'm about to really depress everybody, but it's always nice to talk.
1: Well, and uh, you know, some people might be surprised that, you know, if they haven't read this report, and maybe they're just relying on some political spin, that that there is all of this lying here in plain sight, because a lot of this has been focused on some of the politics of it, or like I say, yep. you know, the, the public inquiry question. Uh, are, are you surprised that uh, a lot of what's in this report is is kind of being lost in all of that?
2: That's actually a great question, and the short answer is no. I'm not actually surprised. Look, I, let me break the fourth wall here for a minute. I'm going to talk to you. and just going to talk directly to your listeners. Whenever a breaking news story happens like this, to make the immediate deadlines, you don't have the opportunity to go really in-depth. You kind of have to roll with an interesting angle that is something you're already familiar with. And then what happens, and this is, this is a problem. I'm not pretending it's not a problem. But after a couple of days, you start to get really informed commentary by experts. But by then, the public's attention has already kind of moved on a little bit. So in a perfect world, we would find some way to align sort of maximum public attention with with, with any breaking news story a couple of days after it comes out because then they'd actually get the benefit of the really informed thought. I don't say this in any way to dismiss the work of my colleagues because I've been in that same situation but I, I edit my own magazine now. My deadline is whatever the hell I decide it is. Like, I'm not racing some arbitrary clock. And before I really said much of anything yesterday, I made the point of reading the Johnson Report. I'm actually sitting down with, with – I printed the damn thing out. I used up all my wife's paper. She was not happy with me. Got a patent paper out myself. I started taking handwritten notes and reading through the thing. Old school. And I don't know if I disagree – with what a lot of my colleagues have have looked at, like a lot of them have been looking at whether or not Johnson was compromised by his previous relationship with Justin Trudeau. A lot of people have been focused very much on the issue of the public inquiry, whether or not we need one, whether or not we benefit from one. And again, this is all important, but it struck me as I'm reading the report that between pages, roughly between pages 17 and page 30 of a 55 page report, David Johnson has laid out for us something there that should be shouted from the rooftops. And I don't know if anyone listened. And I, I just I don't honestly know if many of my colleagues scrambling to hit their deadlines really appreciated what they were reading when they read through Johnson's report. It, it's Rob. A couple of months ago, we had uh, Justice Paul Rouleau count, come out with the Public Order Emergency Commission findings about the use of the Emergencies Act during the convoy. And all of the top-level analysis on that was whether or not the Trudeau government was justified. And ultimately, Justice Rouleau said yes, but it wasn't. but he also said, I am well aware of the fact that other people will reasonably disagree. It was a really tough margin call. He came down on one side of it while acknowledging that a reasonable person could disagree. Mm-hmm. I think that was largely the takeaway from the report. But when I was reading the report, what was jumping out for, for me was a narrative we hadn't seen before. Because a lot had already been written about the Ottawa police. A lot had already been written about the border situation in Coots, closer to you, uh, closer to me, Doug Ford's reaction to it. And that's where all the ink had been spilled. But what the POEC report gave us for the first time was a look at intelligence and decision-making within the Canadian federal government. We we were seeing emails and text messages between senior officials. Some of them were obviously redacted, but you could get the thrust of it. And I I wrote in February, and I really tried to get people to pay attention to this, that what the, the Rouleau report found about the convoy, was that the Canadian government, when confronted with a crisis that was quite literally on its front doorstep, didn't work. It didn't know – like critical people within our national security establishment didn't know who to communicate with in a crisis. They didn't know what their authority was. They didn't know what the limits of their power was, like uh, where they were constrained. There were basic failures, including just at a certain point, like not enough people to do the work, like basic human resources staffing limitations on the ability to process and distribute data. The communication systems were slow and inefficient. And in the POAC report, (laughs) I I, I am mentioned uh, because some of the reports I was writing from Ottawa during the convoy crisis were being passed around by government officials who were trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Rob, I have an extremely strong and unapologetic pro-read-Matt Gurney bias. You should all be reading (laughs) Matt Gurney. But I don't want our federal government in the state – during a national emergency to be relying on me to tell it what's going on. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And the reason I've gone on this weird little digression into all the the Convoy and the Poex stuff is in David Johnson's report, again, roughly between pages 17 and 30 – But honestly, you could even say pages like 18 to 23, if you really want to narrow down on it. It's the exact same thing. What we're learning from this, among all the other stuff about like, you know, uh, Johnson has spent a lot of time reviewing the media coverage, and he's very critical of some of it. Mm -hmm. But he's also telling us that our government can't communicate with itself. Our bureaucratic processes are broken. You know, when... The, our intelligence agencies, we have CSIS and we also have the CSE, the Communication Security Establishment, and also to an extent the RCMP would be involved in generating domestic intelligence when there is secret information that needs to be conveyed to the government. And I'm not making this up, man. This is ripped right from Johnson's report. A bunch of unorganized reports are put into a binder. That binder is presented in a secured room to a senior government representative. They are allowed to read the binder, but they're not allowed to take notes because that would violate the law because they'd be copying classified information. The binders are not organized. They are not prepared in a way where, like, most important thing is first, and there is no one from the security services present to provide a briefing or any context or to answer any questions. Imagine if you and I were preparing for our respective radio shows And our producers gave us a binder loaded with, like, random news stories that we weren't allowed to take any notes from. You and I couldn't do our jobs. But we're expecting our federal government to manage our national security on the basis of a binder that they aren't allowed to even have on their persons. And one of the things Johnston found is that there's almost no record keeping of who has access to the documents. And there's no paper trail that will prove, oh, here's an, here's an urgent intelligence item that needs to be seen by, say, the Minister of Public Safety or the Minister of National Defense. The intelligence agencies will, like, prepare the briefing, and then there's no follow-up to actually confirm that anyone in the government has, has bothered to read it. And one of the things that Johnson has found is that there's so few people who are involved in this that if a particular staffer misses a day – on vacation, getting married, oops, slipped on some ice and twisted their ankle. There is no one who steps up to actually take custody of that and make sure the key people are briefed. About three weeks ago, I wrote in the Toronto Star, in a column I wrote there, that one of the habits we can see with this government, and I went through like five or six examples, is how they're surprised by things they shouldn't be surprised about where like a through line through so many of their scandals is, oh, man, we didn't know about that. No one told us. This is stuff with the convoy, stuff with COVID. I even said some of the sexual misconduct stuff in the Canadian Armed Forces. It's like, well, yeah, we knew the general had been accused of something, but no one ever really gave us a full answer. David Johnston and Justice Rouleau, in their in their respective reports, they're telling us why our government can't communicate with itself And we are continually shocked by events we have been warned about because those warnings don't go anywhere and no one follows up on them.
1: You know, because I think as some of these revelations have come to light, people have struggled to understand how we missed all of this, or how no action would have been taken, and it just seems staggering. And it leads some people to assume that there's some some negligence or, or something worse here. But it's it, again, it, it just it's it's this level of incompetence where you know David Johnston talks about situations where information that should be brought to a minister or the prime minister doesn't reach them because it sort of gets lost in this sea of material. Uh, instances where intelligence should have made it to the ministerial level, but for some reason the minister did not see. So it it, it seems incomprehensible to people that, you know, something is flagged by CSITs, it's important, it, it went to a minister, should have gone to a minister, and just gets lost, and people wonder, well, how on earth could this otherwise be explained? I mean, here it is.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, David Johnston is being accused of a whitewash on the behalf of the Trudeau government here. I also, I'm being honest with you, Rob, I haven't really weighed in on whether or not Johnson was the right guy or the appropriate guy to do this. I, I have nothing against David Johnson. I think he's a serious, credible guy. I think if only for the appearance of a conflict of interest, he was not the right person for this job. I'm not questioning his ability or his judgment. I'm just saying there was bad political optics and that matters. That being said, I don't think what Johnston has provided here is a whitewash of the Trudeau government. I think what he's provided here, after you read through the stuff at the very top, is actually an exceptionally harsh criticism of the Trudeau government. And there's one uh, line in particular that really jumped out at me. So Johnston spoke with the prime minister, and the prime minister had said, as part of um, tearing down the amount of information he's exposed to every day, Intelligence is only passed on to him if it's considered to be, like, reliable or relevant. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that. Like, we can't just blast a fire hose of information in the prime minister's face every day. He's one guy at the top of a big institution, and he'd overload. I get that. But what Johnson also pointed out is that the prime minister is kind of right in the big picture sense, but he's wrong because Johnson has documented examples where even though the prime minister is going, hey, I can't be exposed to everything. We need to trim things down to stuff I actually need to know. Johnson is saying there have been things that you should have known, or that senior cabinet ministers should have known, or members of your uh, 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 the privy office or your prime minister's office should have known that you aren't. So I don't think that Johnson is arguing per se that the prime minister needs to be told everything. What he is saying in black and white is that there are things that senior members of the Trudeau government should have been told that they haven't been, and that's a failure. And I, I made this point, Rob, Justin Trudeau did not create these problems. It's a, I don't think he sat down one day with like a, a, like a felt pen and a whiteboard and sketched out how he thinks this system ought to work and then came up with something really stupid. But he's responsible for the problem. It's his job. He's been in government for seven and a half years. You know, I have sympathy for a new government when it takes power and then it has to kind of figure out what the previous guys had all screwed up. I get it. But at a certain point, and I don't know when that point is, but I know it's before seven and a half years, you are no longer the victim of broken government problems when you're the government. You're responsible for broken government problems when you're the government here. And I'm reading this report and I'm thinking, Did no one inside ever look around and go, you know, maybe it's actually pretty stupid that we have to get our classified briefings from a binder in, like, a booth somewhere? The public safety minister, uh, the former public safety minister, Bill Blair, he's the minister of emergency preparedness now. He told David Johnston about the Michael Chong family threat issue that he never received a briefing about that. And one of the reasons he never received a briefing about that is because CSIS doesn't come to him They ask him to go to them, and that the Minister of Public Safety is not considered a necessary official to be on a secure network of top-secret emails that can be circulated quickly within the government. There is such a network. There is the ability within the Canadian federal government to quickly circulate on secure communication channels top-secret information, but we haven't put the public safety minister or his chief of staff in the loop. Rob, what the hell are we doing putting someone in charge of a ministry that is quite literally and aptly called public safety but then deciding that they shouldn't be on the super-duper important email list? And why didn't anyone inside go, this is stupid? And this is what Trudeau and his government has failed at. I don't think they created this problem. But for seven years, did no one put up their hand and go, this is a really stupid way of doing this. After we got caught with our pants down by COVID-19, you know, oh, the risk to Canada is low. The risk to Canada is low. Whoops, flash forward, and 50,000 of us are dead. The war in Ukraine, Mm -hmm. the growing risk of cyber attacks, the instability and radicalization in the United States, the threat of China to Canada and Canadians. And no one was looking around and going, maybe this binder-based system is a stupid way to run a government in the 2020s. And on um, uh, in, in the report, page 19, I shouldn't have laughed, but I did. There's a line where David Johnson, very polite man, says that he is aware and his, his, his staff are aware that in recent weeks, the federal government has begun a, pr- a process of streamlining the sharing of critical national security information. Right. In recent
1: weeks? Yeah. I mean, look, these these stories have been coming up for months. This is a situation that goes back years. And here we are, I guess, a few weeks ago. They decided maybe it was time to take a look at this.
2: Yeah, yeah, they're all over it now, man. Nothing to worry about.
1: Right. Which, as even David Johnston says, is an important start. In other words, it's far from what's necessary. You
2: know, when I tell my kids they've made a good start on something, I'm really dreading the day they realize what I really mean. Right. And David Johnson, gentleman that he is, like I said, I got I got I got nothing bad to say about David Johnson personally, even if I think with hindsight he was not the right choice for the job. He is a gentleman and a scholar and he is polite to a fault. Somebody needs to drag these politicians into the public square and put them on blast. They need to be humiliated and yelled at and shamed until they fix these problems, because it seems to me that we have two problems unfolding at once. We have a bureaucracy in Ottawa, particularly in the national security area, probably not exclusively, but certainly there, that has become bloated and just completely gummed up, right? Like, they, uh, the Johnson Report and the POEC Report speak for themselves. These guys cannot do their job. That's one problem. The other problem is that there's no one at the political level who's keeping them accountable. You know, we could probably survive a gummed-up, dysfunctional, bloated, overly centralized bureaucracy, or a really stupid, hyper-partisan, Um, polarized political system. I don't think we can survive both of those things at once Mm -hmm. because one of those things needs to be bailing the other one out. And in Canada right now, we have both of those problems happening simultaneously. There is no one doing the work that needs to be done in Ottawa to keep our country safe at the staffing level. And there is no one at the political level who seems to care at least not care enough to actually do anything about it. I don't know where that takes us, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably nowhere good.
1: Right. I mean, you know, the, the optimistic take on all of that is, uh, look, this has all been brought to light. This has all been laid out in this report and we're going to have public hearings and, and surely that will highlight a lot of these problems that, that, I mean, it's, it's got to be the case that, that the government is going to be shamed into action here, uh, if not by all of this attention, by the media, by the opposition or whoever. Is that, is that too optimistic? Is there a track record in this country of meaningful change coming from embarrassing revelations?
2: I think you're too optimistic, and I think there's no real track record of meaningful change. We always improve things at the margins. You know, here I am echoing David Johnson. Hey, good start, National Security Office for the the Prime Minister, on streamlining your communications. You're three years late. But great, great work, everybody. But I think we know the way Ottawa works. This is not one of the identified priorities for the Trudeau government. Look, if this was like, first of all, on the one hand, if this was like child care or the carbon tax or like uh, more gun control – I would believe that the Trudeau government would be more engaged. There's no there's no political constituency in Canada, let alone particularly for the Liberal Party of Canada that is focused on public safety and national security issues. There never has been. Yeah. And I I think the Liberals are maybe particularly guilty of this, but I don't think the Conservatives are great at this either. Like I'm not I'm not saying Prime Minister Poilievre is going to fix this. There's no real political constituency here. But what really freaks me out is that even when we look at the issues? I, I just rattled a few off: gun control, uh, carbon tax, child care, reconciliation. Even the things the liberals say are their top priorities, they suck at those too. Like these are the guys who turn deliverology into a punchline. They struggle with policy execution on almost every major file. They got a couple of things right, and I try to give credit where those happened, if only for a change of pace. So they haven't been 100% abject across-the-board failures. But I don't think there's anyone in official Ottawa who denies the fact that the Trudeau government has massive problems with so-called deliberology, taking yeah. a policy idea and executing it into policy. And that's true even of the things they are politically motivated to get right What chance does something they don't care about have?
1: We'll leave it on that note. Uh, Your latest is mentioned at at The Line. It's theline.substack.com. Big mess we've got on our hands for sure. But, uh, Matt Gurney, do appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks for joining us here today.
2: Hey, man, I warned you it would be depressing. Until next time.
1: (laughs) You were right. Thanks again, Matt. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon. There is much still to get to. We'll certainly talk more about the report yesterday from former Governor General David Johnston, uh, the special rapporteur on the issue of foreign interference, uh, some of the implications uh, from this report, where we all go from here. Uh, So much more to get to on that. We'll touch on the uh, Alberta election, of course, uh, just five days away. Uh, from Election Day here in this province. So much more to get to on that as well. More time for your phone calls too, 403-974-8255. But I want to make sure we address this issue because I think this is an important conversation about what July 1st is, what it represents, and how we acknowledge and celebrate that day in this country. Uh, If you hadn't heard already, the city of Calgary is scaling back significantly on its Canada Day celebrations, which includes a decision to cancel the annual fireworks display. Now, what's interesting is that city councillors are now saying that they weren't consulted on this move. So who exactly made this decision? Among the reasons being cited here are cultural sensitivity and more specifically uh, on issues around truth and reconciliation. Now, look, I mean, no one's saying that this country is without faults, And I think there's been very important conversations happening in recent years about our past and about reckoning with some of the dark sides of our past. But is all of that to say that there's nothing about this country to celebrate, that we can't have a celebration around July 1st and recognize the great things about this country? Because I think that's, that's what this all speaks to. Is a bigger philosophical question about uh, how and, and I guess maybe whether we acknowledge Canada Day. Should there still be a Canada Day? But more specifically uh, on this decision by city council, is this the right decision? So A lot of pushback. Now, thousands have signed a petition calling on city council uh, to, to step in and reverse this decision. Even some city councillors are expressing their concern or disappointment with their decision. Someone else has been following all of this. Uh, Calgary Nose Hill Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner put out a statement yesterday calling on city council to reverse this decision. And Michelle joins us on the line here this afternoon. Great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me by the way, before we get into this, I mean, obviously, you know, huge news yesterday with the release of this report. We're not going to get a public inquiry, a lot of questions about where this this issue goes from here. Just maybe a thought from you on, you know, the last 24 hours and and what you saw and heard in that report yesterday.
3: You know, one thing that's not being discussed that I wish that there was more attention to on this issue is that I don't think David Johnson talked to many members of the diaspora community uh, in Canada. Um, My writing has... A very large percentage of that community and um, I think that their voices really needed to be heard and reflected in this report and I don't feel that they were and um, uh, I I think it was just really disappointing Um, I don't blame David Johnson I actually blame Justin Trudeau for using David Johnson in this this manner Um, I I think we've done a disservice to our country our sovereignty and to our pluralism I really do Mm
1: -hmm. Well, let's talk about uh, this decision uh, here in Calgary. And, look, I mean, you know, you're a Calgarian, you're a Canadian, uh, so so this affects you too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a federal politician looking in on, on a municipal decision, wh- why did you feel it was important to, to speak out about this?
3: I think that there's um, a lot of things and a lot of reasons um, that people are looking at within our country right now that can divide us as a country. And I think there's a lot of... Um, external actors in the world that would love to see um, Canada fall apart at the seams. Because we are a democratic pluralism, um, we're an open, welcoming country, and for generations we've, we've managed to make think that work. Now, to your point at the front end of the segment, it's not perfect. We have to address reconciliation. We have to address the longstanding impacts of colonialization and racism. I don't think doing those things it's a binary choice between celebrating the miracle that is our country and the pride that we can take in that and using that unity to solve those problems and i i think that you know yes i'm a federal politician i am a resident of this city but i just we have to we have to celebrate what unites us as a country particularly when those things are really good things like everything that i just mentioned right like our capacity to overcome Major problems to resolve our political differences without result, resorting to war or violence. Like that, those are things that are worth celebrating. And I, I just, I think that when we shy away from that, um, you know, however well intentioned, perhaps um, we actually invite division into our community. So rather than looking for, you know, ways to sort of, you know, diminish opportunities that we can come together in unity, I think we should, we should be looking for more of them. So I was concerned. I I really Mm -hmm. was when I saw that announcement yesterday.
1: Probably surprised, too. And I imagine you're like most of us. You know, we we sort of heard the announcement through the media. And it's unclear exactly how this all transpired. I mean, what was your initial reaction when you heard about this? And do you have any more insight on, on where this came from?
3: I just, you know, I've been doing this a hot minute. And I know when something is going to cause concern and anger in the community, and I knew that this was going to cause concern and anger in the community across political stripes, and it has. Um, and, again, like, I don't want to come across and make this, like, a bombastic political issue. I think that there are people on city council, their hearts are in the right place, but this this decision makes doesn't bring any good to our community. It really doesn't. It It, it sends a message that, like, we have... That we, that we, we shouldn't be proud of our country, like, and that's what it does say. They might argue against that, but um, I, I think that at this moment in time, when like the global geopolitical situation is so unstable, um, there's a lot of political polarization in our country. Taking a moment and pausing and being, you know, grateful and celebratory for the miracle of being a, a, able to live in this country—that's worth celebrating. And being proud of doesn 't mean like you said that we shouldn't be addressing other issues, um, but I, I don't know it just I really hope that city council works to to reconsider this. I know that there's other reasons that they cited you know fireworks are noisy, but you know what so our, our so is our country, right, so is our democracy, so is our pluralism, and you know going the, the traffic congestion and stuff that might happen with fireworks for one night a year when we can you know, gather and celebrate as a community. I I don't know. I I just I really hope they reconsider this. I I, I, it just feels wrong to me.
1: Yeah. And I think to a lot of people, too. And I mean, this this does touch on some some deeper issues that we've alluded to here. Um, You know, I mean, it's one could argue it's only fireworks. But you know, there's there's more to it than just that. What kind of reaction uh, have you been seeing and hearing from people?
3: I actually heard about it quite a bit, yeah. um, and, and from and, and not from like sort of you know just just conservative voters. I, I think that you know when you drill down to, into it, we hear so many negative things in the news, but like we we actually do have a lot to celebrate as a country. Um, And and our leaders need to actually find moments and opportunity to really celebrate that and talk about it. And even in the announcement about why, the the tone of the announcement about why they were sort of cancelling this opportunity, it was like, oh, you know, know, like this is something like Canada Day. It was sort of like apologetic in tone. And again, I, I... I, I just I can't reemphasize this enough. Yes, there are, like, we do have to seriously address the fact that there are longstanding impacts of colonization in our country. And we have to seriously, not just symbolically, but seriously address reconciliation and the challenges First Nations and Indigenous persons face in our country today. That, that is absolutely something we have to do. We also have to celebrate the fact that somehow we are this country that's of people who stand on Indigenous First Nations territory that manage to, to live together in, in, in some semblance of harmony and, and resolve differences peaceably and bring a lot of hope to the world. And a lot of people want to come and live here, and that is worth celebrating. And because we are a pluralism, there are lots of opportunities for a regionally diverse country for us to be divided. And Canada Day, of all days, it should be one of those days where we're just like, yes, we're a great country. I am proud to live here. I'm proud. I, I commit to, you know, keeping it this way. And, like, when we send a message that that's not acceptable behavior, people, especially people who are angry right now, we've, we, you know, we've collectively come through this trauma that was the pandemic. Um, like, we need, leaders need to find opportunities where we're just leaning enthusiastically into those, that type of a sentiment to bring people back together after we were apart for like two years, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I hope I'm coming across as really, you know, well-intentioned and passionate on this. I just, if my colleagues on city council are listening, this is not me imploring you as a partisan, it's me imploring you as a very proud Canadian who lives in Calgary, help us celebrate that and help us celebrate our country.
1: All right, some great points. We'll leave it there. Michelle, appreciate your time here this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, That's uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, the uh, Conservative Member of Parliament for Calgary-Nose Hill, calling on City Council to reverse this decision. Now, look, here's the thing. I mean, you know, Canada Day can be whatever it is you want it to be. If you want to celebrate Canada, celebrate it. If you don't want to, don't. Like, it is, at some level, an individual decision. Whatever it means to you, then that's what it means to you. But the idea here that, that the city is going to take a position on that, the city is going to decide kind of on everybody's behalf that we shouldn't celebrate it that much, a little bit, just not very much, that too much celebration uh, around Canada Day or too much celebration of this country is somehow a bad thing. Right? So that's the decision they're making, which I think is unfortunate. So not surprising that there's a lot of pushback here including, as mentioned, uh, a petition that now thousands uh, have signed. As of yesterday afternoon, it was over 8,000. Not sure what it is today. Just a little bit more on this story here, uh, some of the background and some more of the reaction in this report from Global's Craig Momney.
4: The loud bangs of fireworks are usually a sign of celebration, a sight many have come to expect on Canada Day. But lately, they've been a topic of controversy. Last week, the city announced it had canceled its Canada Day fireworks.
0: Members of council weren't consulted on this. This was a decision made by the administrative leadership team uh, in consultation with the city manager and with uh, a number of different uh, um, outside agencies and, and cultural groups.
4: Councilor Chabot says he's received hundreds of emails asking why the longstanding tradition was canceled.
0: I mean, it's a, it's a great gathering opportunity. And I, for me, this is just a terrible loss.
4: This year's Canada Day celebration will take place at Fort Calgary. Instead of fireworks, there will be pyrotechnics no higher than tree level. We are going to bring more people down to Fort Calgary to celebrate together and at the same time reduce the impact to both the neighbouring communities and anyone who lives around town who feels like Canada Day is a day that should be acknowledged in a more contemplative way. The change also recognises cultural sensitivities in respect to the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Immigration Act, as well as truth and reconciliation. July 1st is a celebration of genocide against Indigenous people and land theft. That's what Canada Day is. Robin and would rather see information than the waving of the red and white. It is very clear the adult population has no concept about the Chinese Exclusion Act or about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So I think we need to be doing a lot more education on those days rather than, you know, celebration. A petition started by Common Sense Calgary to reverse the city's decision has been signed more than 6,700 times and it continues
1: to gain support. Craig Momney, Global News. Yeah, so let's be clear. First of all, this is a political decision. And all these excuses about the noise or traffic or, you know, the environment, you know, as, as the mayor pointed out yesterday, and, and she was actually trying to defend this decision, that, hey, we're still going to get 10 days of fireworks during the stampede. So hang on a second here. If we're worried about noise, or we're worried about crowds, or we're worried about traffic or we're worried about you know, the impact of the environmental impact of shooting off fireworks. And that's why we have to scale it back uh, on Canada Day. And your justification for that is that we're still going to get fireworks for 10 days during Stampede. Okay, well, if it was about any of those other things, we'd be scaling back the Stampede fireworks too. They're the same fireworks. It's not a more environmentally friendly brand of fireworks that we to be shooting off every night during the Stampede. And all of these other concerns that they're trying to, to uh, attach to this decision. Just don't hold any water. And, and it's pretty hypocritical of the mayor to use that as some kind of a justification. Don't worry about not getting fireworks on Canada Day. We're still going to have a bunch of fireworks during Stampede. So if it's okay to do fireworks during Stampede, why do we have to cancel it on, on Canada Day? Other than these political reasons. So just be upfront about why you're doing it. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.